Noble Experiment by Robert P. Fitton. Episode 10, Von Grunko's Phony Ship. Bob Coffey sat inside the shuttle airplane as it landed in Appleton, Oregon. Coffey had been apprehensive all during the trip across the country. He was now second-guessing his decision about Stingler, feeling he may have been impetuous. After all, he was relying on information obtained by Brady, whom he deemed unstable now, and his superiors in the Air Force, namely General Hunt, would want answers. In many ways, Coffee hoped Stingler would not show up at the small airport. Maybe his reservation had been a mistake, and the sergeant had a logical explanation. Coffee had to act in any event, and he rented a Dodge Valiant, driving it up a grassy hill overlooking the fabricated terminal and landing strip. He was prepared to wait two hours. If Stingler did not show up at the Appleton Airport, he would drive the distance to Junebug and get a motel room. He lit his pipe and began to read the local paper, checking the runways from time to time. An hour passed. He had read the entire newspaper and it was crumpled in the back seat. He raised his binoculars, looking north, swinging them past a lightweight propeller-driven aircraft. Tightening his grip, he focused on the plane as it neared the airport. This would be it, he thought, as the tiny plane descended from the blue sky, scraping its wheels on the asphalt as it came in for the landing. The plane taxied around the runway and stopped next to the terminal. Coffee focused the binoculars on the hatch, waiting for the passengers to unload. The hatch was lowered and several people came down the ramp. The colonel squinted in the sunlight as his aide, Sergeant Lawrence Stingler, in civilian clothes, skidded down the incline. He was met by two robust men in dark blue suits. Stingler shook hands with them, exchanged tidbits, and then walked inside the terminal. Coffee did not recognize the two men, but he did recognize the unusual situation. While he did not have proof of Stingler's involvement with Von Grunkel, he was positive that all of this warranted calling General Hunt. Coffee would be putting his credibility online, and he would be doing what Bill Brady had spent a lifetime doing taking a chance. He pulled the Valiant across the street to the airport restaurant. The word phone was designated in white letters across the top of the window. Rushing in from the car, he went inside to the telephone booth in the corner next to the front windows. He then placed a call to General Hunt in the Pennsylvania mountains. He what? demanded Hunt. I have proof that he's in cahoots with Von Gronkel. It all centers around Junebug, Oregon said Coffee as he watched the roadway leading from the terminal. I'm standing here cooking fish and you're telling me that Von Grunkle has somehow fooled us all? And you're telling me that Larry Stingler is working side by side with him? Bob, where the hell did you get this information? From a uh, reporter, he said, not wanting to mention Brady's name, but the general knew better. Brady, snapped Hunt. Look, General, all right, it was Brady, confessed Coffey. Whoa, 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 I'd like to see that information before we go following Larry around. And just what is he doing up here, General? And who in God's name are those two men with him? Bob, I can't answer that. Wait, said Coffey as he raised the binoculars. They're getting into a car right now, General. Look, Bob, I... General, please send people up here to Junebug. Let's cover the area and get to the bottom of what's going on up here. Bob, I just can't send people out there without any proof, especially on the word of Bill Brady. 
I'll take the heat, Cal. Totally. If I'm wrong, I resign my commission and take all the responsibility. Well, you must be pretty damn sure, Bob. But it's not all that easy. This will have to be discussed. General, they're leaving the airport now. Here comes the car. It's a 62 Buick Green, Colorado Plate HX8583. HX8583. Bob, I would advise you, said the general as coffee hung up. Coffee ran through the restaurant and out the front door to the Valiant. He leaped into the driver's seat and started the engine. The Buick was close to a half a mile away as it turned onto the main road, heading south into the country. Coffee accelerated the smaller car, and as he reached the junction, he was not surprised to see the green and white road sign which read, Junebug, 22 miles. The colonel roared over the relatively flat landscape. He could not, in his own pursuit, help thinking that he was falling into the same trap as Brady. Von Grunkle, however, had always stayed one step ahead of Brady, he thought, baiting him with false accounts, which Brady had subsequently published. Maybe this whole thing was pure intuition on Brady's part. It was as if he had some instinctive misapprehension about Von Grunkle, a deep-seated suspicion of the man's inner being. Brady could never properly transfer it into words, but it was that strong feeling which gave him the go-ahead his raison d'etre, to find the answers when he never knew the questions. Coffee did not have such a sense. Understandably, he had been cynical about Von Gronkel before the landing at Tobin Falls. His attitude, however, was shaped by the lack of credibility of the doctor's theories and stories. Like everyone else, deep in his consciousness, he had been ripe for one massive deception, ready to be duped into a false sense of togetherness with beings from another world. It was the instinctive human desire to reach out and to know more than is already known. The longing was still all there, he reasoned, as he drove through the Argonne countryside after the Buick. Von Grunkel had known this vulnerability, and he knew it could be bought for a price, and the result for him was more money and power. The countryside was changing now, growing hilly with the tall fir trees. The road twisted and turned. Before he was aware of it, the Buick was not in sight. He backed up the Valiant wildly, fearing that Stingler and the others had turned off the highway and all would be lost. Hunt had already sounded skeptical about the whole story. What if he could not find Stingler, the car, and the two men in the dark suits? As he backed up the rental car, a yellow and brown sign was coming into view in the rearview mirror. It was the Junebug State Park. Backing into the entrance, he shoved the car into first gear and sped into the park. It did not take long as he traveled down the narrow road till he saw a dust cloud moving along the dirt road ahead. The Buick was moving north along a clear blue reservoir under a mountain slope. When it went around the mountain, Coffee pushed the accelerator to the floor and crossed the reservoir dam road. Suspicious, he said out loud, very suspicious. The Valiant, breaking the 10 mile an hour speed limit, flew down the sloped road at 50 miles an hour. He rose upward, reaching the top, and to the north, the whole Appleton Valley was coming into view. As he rushed toward the fork in the road at the top of the hill, he skidded to a stop and got out of the car. Standing on the driver's side, he placed the binoculars to his eyes and looked north. The Buick was following a winding dirt road through apple orchards, surrounded by a fair-sized river. It spun from the dirt road suddenly and rolled across the apple orchards. Coffee followed its progress closely as it traveled for nearly a half a mile. A wide slit in the grass, just barely discernible without the field glasses, 
appeared ahead, and astoundingly the car vanished into the ground. The slit was sealed and only the grass remained. Despite this remarkable turn of events, Coffee stayed cool and in control of his actions. Again, he lifted the binoculars northward toward Appleton, scrutinizing as he smiled. In the distance, he could see a contingent of helicopters heading south toward Junebug. Hunt had trusted his judgment, and quickly. It would only be a matter of time before they were overhead, and he could signal them. He breathed a sigh of relief, letting the binoculars dangle around his neck as he gazed across the valley. Hands in the air! ordered a voice from behind. Don't move or you're a dead man. Coffee raised his hands into the air in compliance, even though he was not armed. Three men in casual street clothes surrounded the valiant on both sides. They carried high-powered rifles and not-so-subtle expressions of hostility. Turn, yelled the same voice. Coffee looked at them with a slight grin. Gentlemen? The man who had spoken began to search him. When the guy found no weapons, he ripped the binoculars from the colonel's neck. In your car, he shouted abrasively. Driver's seat. Very well, said Coffee as he followed their instructions, and he couldn't help but think just how right Bill Brady had been. Two of the men piled in the back seat as the leader jumped in front. He looked over at Coffee and let the gun point directly at him. All right, Colonel, drive. You saw where that car went? I know you did. Now go. Coffee put the car in reverse and backed around very casually, as if he were out for a Sunday drive with his wife. He shifted into drive and drove down the road. The leader of the three men became agitated. Come on, step on it, he yelled, the words spitting from his mouth. Coffee increased his speed, moving through the forested slopes and into the orchards below. He had no doubt about the impropriety involved. It was the nature of the effort that plagued him. And he knew as the helicopters advanced, he would be underground well before their arrival over the park. Where do I go? He asked the man in the front seat. Over there, between the trees, he pointed, just like the other car. They passed off the dirt road and onto the grass, the valiant bumping up and down. Ahead, Coffee could see the slit in the ground begin to open. He slowed the car and brought it inside down a cement ramp which sloped deep into the earth. The ramp wound around to the right and Coffee shifted into a lower gear. The road finally straightened and leveled off in an open room about a hundred feet below the surface. Immediately in front of them was an awesome black cylinder riveted in sections like a water tank. Coffee stopped the car as several more men ran from a glass room surrounding the inner room in the center tank. Get out, Colonel, instructed the man in the front seat, and they all stepped out. The guns were trained on Coffee as he stood by the car. He looked up at the hundreds of fluorescent lights on the steel frame ceiling. As he peered toward the glass room with its blinking lights, he saw, with no real surprise, Dr. Olin von Grunkel standing in the doorway. Damn you! Damn you, said Von Grunkel as he stomped from the room. You have alerted the authorities, you fool, he shouted, but Coffee was silent. Don't you have anything to say, Colonel? Pleasure to see you, Doctor, smiled Coffee, tipping his cap and infuriating Von Grunkel. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I will have my chance again. We will get away from here. Coffee very calmly took out his pipe and lit the tobacco. As he puffed away, he studied the troubled Von Grunkel. Seems as though you've been busy, Doctor. How did you find this place? Was it Brady? Did he lead you here? 
Is Brady still alive? Bill Brady is a fugitive from justice, Doctor. I haven't seen him since Ventura. I know that is not true. I know this, shouted the Doctor. But that is not important now. I will find out what I want to know later, he said, turning abruptly and walking toward the glass room. Follow me, Colonel. Oh, Doctor, said one of the men as he came down from the car with Coffee's briefcase in the manila envelope. I found this in the car, Doctor. Von Grunkle took the folder and saw the postmark. He ripped the folder and pulled out the photocopies. Biting his tongue, he skimmed the bills of lading. Then he looked up at Coffee. I have no time for this now. I will find the truth, Colonel, and you will not find it very pleasurable, believe me. Von Grunkle marched into the room, followed by the pipe-smoking coffee. There were dozens of color television monitors above the blinking lights. Their screens revealed a number of locations, the interior of a spaceship, and the exact spaceship described by the people who had been let off by the Urantians in Tobin Falls. He could see additional bronze beings walking around the ship with the stars in the background. He turned to the far monitors on his right and nodded his head. A new group of drugged abductees lay sleeping in their respective rooms. Oh, this is very clever. Very clever, Doctor, said Coffee with respect. They will remain asleep for an appropriate time, said Von Grunkle as one of his men pointed to another set of monitors outside. Doctor, this helicopters. They will see nothing. Don't worry about it, said Von Grunkle as he shook his head. I have taken precautions against people like you, Colonel, and Mr. Brady. It's just a matter of time. They will pass and we will leave. Leave? Asked Coffee, still looking at the monitors. Yes, leave, Colonel. You haven't even asked about my simulator, said the egotistical Von Grunkle. But Coffee deliberately kept his eyes on the helicopters. Inside the vault of that tank is a vacuum. It surrounds the inner simulator. Coffee was not impressed, but he did not let Von Grunkle become aware of that fact. Twenty choppers, almost overhead, Doctor. Interesting. And inside that vacuum, said Von Grunkle, raising his voice, is a simulated star scan as it would look to fun traveling in space. Do you know why, Colonel? Coffee turned from the television monitors, his pipe in his mouth as he stared at Von Grunkle. Doctor, I will tell you why, because we are simulating the actual flight. Those people are conditioned to think they are aboard an alien craft. Ducted them in blinding light, drugging them until we were ready for them. They are still drugged when we want them to be. They are regimented, taught by the aliens. And do you know why we have done this? He asked as Stingler emerged from the door of the glass room. Well, hello, Larry, said Coffee. Hello, Bob, said the self-assured Stingler. Congratulations are in order, Larry, he told Stingler. What do you mean? asked the perplexed sergeant. I mean, said Coffee, how you adeptly hoodwinked us all in Washington. How you've worked so closely with Von Grunkle, worthy of the good doctor himself. I will take that as a compliment, Colonel. Impressive, said Coffee as he smiled. Impressive that you pulled this whole thing off. I am impressed. But you wouldn't do this for nothing, would you, Larry? 
I have already got six million dollars, and I will have another fifteen, which will be delayed now because of your curiosity, said Von Grunkle as he adjusted his thick glasses and looked at the radar screen on the wall. Two miles downrange for those choppers, Doctor, said one of the workers. That's good. We will board the simulator now. Everyone will go below, and we will have the vacuum secured, said Von Grunkle. There was a mass exit along the glass wall to a hatch about halfway around the wall. Going on a little trip, are we? Asked Coffee as he shuffled along ahead of Von Grunkle. Yes, we are, stated Von Grunkle as he followed Coffee to the hatch. Coffee stepped through the hatch and onto a staircase of reinforced concrete that wound under the glass room. It led to another hatch, which was directly under the imposing black tank. Coffee estimated its diameter to be close to 200 feet. You have set the project back only a short time, Colonel. No one will prove anything about Junebug. Now, Colonel, let us get to the heart of the matter. I am not giving you this demonstration for my enhancement of my age. I want you to work for me just like Larry has worked for me. No. Ah, that was quick. But I assure you, you will be financially rewarded. Say, half a million dollars? Is that how much it took to buy Stingler? Asked Coffee. Seven hundred thousand. Forget it, Von Grunkle. I'm not for sale. All right, then. Do you value your own life? I will personally push you from this ship near the bay. Good. Then I won't have to look at your sickening cuss a minute longer. Well, I will give you some time, said Von Grunkle as he undid his seatbelt and rose. Oh, doctor, just one final thing. Yes, what is it, Colonel? Do you really believe that aliens have come to Earth and have made contact with us? Yes, of course. That is my driving force, he replied sharply. But have you ever had one shred of reliable evidence? Well, I, uh, of course, of course I have. Aha, you and I both know we're alone out here. Have you or have you not had any evidence of alien landings? Von Grunkle puckered his lips and was genuinely flustered. He refused to look directly at Coffee and walked quickly to the center of the ship. By not answering the colonel's question, he had indeed answered all his questions. Coffee shook his head. Why had he not listened to Brady when he had the chance to act? He snapped off his harness and went to the glass wall. The countryside, thousands of feet below, was slowly moving under the ship. He thought about all aspects of Von Grunkel's operation, and one thing looked certain. The doctor had planned everything well, and it now appeared as though he would make it out of the country. Keep an eye on coffee, said Von Grunkel to the two guards below. The two nodded their heads as they slowly meandered out of the outside corridor. Doctor, the radar! said one of the men to his left. Radar? scoffed Von Grunkle, and he ran over to the screen. Yes, doctor, coming from a base outside Appleton. Aircraft? asked Von Grunkle arrogantly. Aircraft? He asked now bewilderedly, and he began to think. Increase speed now, he ordered the man below. A doctor, said the voice from the intercom. We are already traveling at a speed of 80 miles an hour faster than they are. There will be others. Increase speed now to maximum. Maximum? asked the man below. Now! They will not catch us. They will not even come close. Poppy, still standing in front of the window, 
was thrown forward onto the floor as the ship thrust forward. The increased acceleration had put the entire ship into confusion, with everyone wondering what was happening. Coffee lifted himself up by a closet door on the opposite wall. Get away from the closet, Colonel, ordered one of the guards below as he too rose to his feet. Very well, said Coffee as he walked precariously toward the window. It was as if the whole ship were becoming unmaneuverable. The land below was getting darker and the sun shone on the rapidly moving object in the sky. The jets had fallen far back behind the simulator and they seemed to be roaring toward Vancouver, British Columbia. But the speed was unsustainable and the ship began to sputter like a car's misfiring spark plug. It lurched from side to side, hurling coffee around the rim and turned violently to the right as it began to lose speed. What the... Coffee started to say as the two guards stumbled into the confusion of the central part of the ship. The engines have overheated. I knew it. Damn it, I knew it, cried the voice on the intercom. Hold your positions, yelled Von Grunkel as the people aboard were becoming worried. We will be under control. No, no, we must press ahead. Von Grunkel monitored a new group of jets that was coming into view in the twilight skies over Portland, Oregon. The pilots seemed geared for action and were getting specific orders from the ground. Do not fire, do not fire. Repeat, do not fire. Roger, Portland. Object is in sight now. Speed fluctuating from 1,100 miles an hour. Now at 900. Course unchanged. Confirmed. Speed is decelerating, said the pilot. 987. Below sound, sir. The object is definitely beginning to drop. Roger, ZW leader. We have the object at 4,000 and falling. In the utter disruption aboard ship, Coffee had raced toward the mysterious closet. Inside were several dozen parachutes, stored neatly on the shelves, as their use was never anticipated. He strapped on the chute as fast as he could, ran to the elevator shaft, and leaped to the bottom. Racing wildly past the controllers, he opened the outside hatch. Before they knew what had happened, Coffee had jumped from the ship. He was free-falling slightly west of the ship. Without delay, he pulled the cord and the pack erupted into a spreading orange and white chute in the twilight. The ship, hundreds of feet away from him now, was plummeting toward the outer regions of the city. He could hear the craft whizzing through the air as it neared a hilly ridge, careening into the earth and exploding like a city gas tank. tiny mushroom cloud rose upward and black smoke inundated the area. As he looked toward the crash, however, he noticed a single parachute descending some distance away. Someone else had survived the crash. Coffee gripped on the straps tightly as he floated downward. He was over a heavily populated residential neighborhood with thousands of homes lining the gridded streets. Steering as best he could, he moved past the telephone lines, trees, and into a backyard of a small ranch house. Although he tumbled over several times, he managed to extricate himself from the rumpled fabric. His first thought, as the people ran from the surrounding houses, was to call General Hunt. From that point on, he would let his supervisors handle everything, or so he thought. Join us next week as a noble experiment by Robert P. Fitton continues. This has been a production of Fitton Theatre of the Words.